This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord and pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, uh, we 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 come to your word now because uh, that is where true delight is found. You are our rock and our redeemer. And Father, we, we come now to your word to, to be reminded and to be encouraged and grown and strengthened through the truth that our Savior did rise from the grave. That he did break our bonds of sin and shame and Father, I pray that through this, this time in your word, you would grow us closer to understanding what that means, and that, that by understanding better what it means, that you would uh, plant it in our hearts and change our lives. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25 this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And I will tell you right off the bat, uh, kind of like last week, this message is going to be pretty simple. All I want to do this morning is convince you that you're crazy. That's it. And, and if you're not crazy, then I want you to be. I want you to consider joining this, this blessed madness that we call the Christian faith. And the way we're going to do that will be similar to last week. Like last week, we're going to go through chapter 5 fairly quickly. But I want you to see, in, in what I want you to see in the, in the structure of chapter 25 is how it repeats the innocence of Paul. And that's important. Five times Luke will record his innocence in chapter 25. Uh, and it's important because then when we get to chapter 26, I want you to see how that amplification of his innocence then amplifies Paul's response. That's what we're going to do. I don't know if you heard the story uh, in the late 1800s, a bishop in the Church of, or a bishop in the, yeah, the Church of the United Brethren. His name was Milton Wright. He pounded the pulpit as he railed against the idea of man flying. After explaining how ungodly it would be, ungodly, for man to fly because uh, they don't have wings. God didn't create them that way. Um, uh, excuse me. After he explained that it would be ungodly for man to fly, he said this. Besides, it is impossible for man to fly. Flight is reserved for the birds and angels. Close quote. Unfortunately for Bishop Wright's credibility, about 15 years later, his son Wilbur stepped into this crazy contraption he called a, a plane and uh, flew for about 15 seconds and 120 feet. Now, before that happened, as he was, as Wilbur and his brother Orville were stepping into this, this thing they called the right flyer, before they took off, everyone thought they were a little touched. The people of Spain were so sure that Christopher Columbus was going to sail off the edge of the world that inscribed on their coins was the Latin phrase, ni plus ultra, or no more beyond. 
After 1492, new coins were minted that said plus ultra, more beyond. Having been rejected by the French, a guy named Robert Fulton brought his idea for a steamboat to America. But at his first public demonstration here in America, the crowd mocked him, chanting, it won't start, it won't start. But after he started it and chugged off up the Hudson River, the crowd changed and started chanting, it won't stop, it won't stop. <laughs> now here's the thing. It's easy to look at people like that with hindsight and admire their tenacity and credibility and courage in the face of rejection and ridicule. But the thing we got to remember is in that moment, while the crowd is chanting at you or while you're doing something new or different or what they don't agree with, in that moment, before they were vindicated, it was incredibly difficult for them to stand in the face of their critics. And the same is true for us today. Right now, you and I are not being restrained by murder or, or torture or even government sanction. Right now, the American church is held at bay almost entirely by the fear of ridicule. Even though we have so many examples of others who overcame, so many of us are today just simply afraid to be labeled as crazy. So I want to see if we can find some encouragement in Acts 25 and 26 to be able to at least accept, if not be proud, to be called crazy. But to fully appreciate what's going on, to fully appreciate the scene we're stepping into in Acts 25, we, we must force ourselves not to, to read past the context. Look at the very end of chapter 24 and verse 27. Luke writes, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now verse 1 of chapter 25. <clears throat> Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, if you have ever spent any time in a boy's locker room, one of the first things you learned is not to fall for, hey, take a whiff of this. And I'm, I can neither confirm nor deny whether I have fallen prey to that or done that myself. In order to fully appreciate what Luke is describing here, here's what we need to do. Let's just start with this. Everybody just take a deep breath. Oh my God, you guys aren't listening. I just told you like five seconds ago not to fall for that. <laughs> Since you did, did you get a whiff of the cell Paul has been living in for two years? See, in order to understand chapter 25 and 26, we need to feel the constant weight of the chains that after two years have become your closest companion. 
We need to feel the stinging, bruised, sensitive sores around your wrists and ankles where the rough manacles have, have kept the, the skin open and raw for two years. We need to think of Joseph left in prison for two years because the king's cupbearer forgot about him. We need to think of Daniel left in prison because he refused to stop praying. It's not unusual for God's innocent people to be left in prison. But like I said a minute ago, it would be our mistake to assume that just because there are no words between chapter 24 and 25, that it wasn't difficult for Paul. It would be our mistake to begin Acts chapter 25 without feeling the temptation that Paul must have faced from the pain and the loneliness and the uncertainty that he has lived in for the past two years. We need to feel how he must have been tempted to change his answers, if for anything, just to get out. He's the Apostle Paul. He's being wasted just sitting here in prison. This is going to come back up in a minute. Now, in addition to that, here's what else happened between 24 and 25. If you'll remember, Felix was not a good governor. Under Felix, the, the civil unrest and everything that was wrong in Jerusalem just, just escalated. And keeping Paul in prison for two years just because he was hoping to get a bribe for him is kind of just an example of how Felix ran ran the, the, the area. So Rome replaced Felix with this guy named Portius Festus. And chapter 25 picks up three days after Festus arrived in the, in the area of Judea. And the first thing governor did was travel to Jerusalem to get a feel for the place that he is now governing. Because no doubt he had been told that, that keeping peace in Jerusalem is the key to keeping your job. Sure enough, when he gets there, those guys are all worked up to execute Paul still. And if you remember last week, it's probably because they were really hungry by now. But Festus had probably been briefed on this whole situation. He, he instead invites them up to Caesarea for yet another hearing of Paul's guilt or innocence. We read verse 5. He said, let the men of authority among you come up. And bring a case against the man. In verse 26, he says, After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So there's the first pronouncement of Paul's innocence. <clears throat> and in the following verses, Paul, you know, he restates his innocence. And after being asked if he wanted like to go to Jerusalem to let these guys kill him, Paul, for some reason, says, no, I'd like to appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And then look at verse 11. Paul says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so then beginning in verse 13, this guy named King Agrippa comes to town. And we'll get to him in a minute, presumably to make introductions with this new governor, Festus. And look at what King Agrippa, or look at what Festus tells Agrippa in verse 17. He says, so when he's talking about these men and Paul and the trial and everything. He says, so when they came together here, that's the men charging Paul, he says, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. He says in verse 18 or um, 19, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul arrested or asserted to be alive. Now, there's the second proclamation of Paul's innocence. And after Festus gave Agrippa a rundown of, of this whole thing that's going on with Paul, look at what Agrippa says in verse 22. He says, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And tomorrow, said Festus, you will hear him. Now, here's why Festus is so eager to hear what Agrippa has to say. King Agrippa, this is technically King Agrippa II. He was the great grandson of King Herod the Great. So, so he's the latest ruler in the line of the Herodian dynasty. And the way this worked is, is after Rome conquered a, a province or an area, in order to keep the peace, they would, for the, for the most part, just keep the local government intact. But they would appoint the king or whoever was ruler. They would appoint a ruler that they wanted. So, so the Herodian kings were a, a local family that, that were loyal to the Romans who had appointed them. The problem was they weren't Jews. They were Edomites, and the Jews didn't like them. But, but even though they were Edomites, they had an understanding of Jewish law. It, it, they, in order to appear pious and to appear like they should be king, they participated in all the ceremonies and rituals in the temple. So the bottom line is this. As far as Festus knows, King Agrippa is an authority on the Jewish religion. He's someone who could hopefully interpret for Felix what, what all this fuss about is with Paul. However, for Paul, there's a big problem. King Agrippa's grandfather was the one who slaughtered all the babies after Jesus was born. King Agrippa's great uncle was the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist at the behest of his stepdaughter. And King Agrippa's father was the one who had beheaded James and then tried to kill Peter, but then he fell dead. So, so Agrippa's family wasn't what one would call nice or good for Christians. Now, in addition to that, Bernice, this lady that came with him, says Agrippa and Bernice in verse 13 arrived at Caesarea. His current wife, she was his full blood sister. In fact, get this, Agrippa and Bernice were so depraved that even the pagan Romans called them morally corrupt. So don't miss the contrast that Luke makes in verse 23. Agrippa said he wanted to hear Paul. And verse 23 says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Did you catch the contrast? On the one hand, you have the entrance of King Agrippa and Bernice. The phrase great pomp, it comes from the, the word polyphantasia, meaning... King Agrippa and, and his sister slash wife Bernice came in with all kinds of fantastic, you know, regalia and pomp and circumstance. They're definitely robed in their purple robes. Uh, Festus is probably wearing his, his formal Roman red, red you know, uh, outfit. There's tribunes and centurions and legionnaires just lining the road on both sides as they roll up to this thing. Then Paul walks in. 
There's a guy named Onesiphorus who Paul had mentioned in the scripture. He's one of Paul's companions. And he later wrote that Paul was a man short in stature, with a bald head, bowed legs, in good condition, eyebrows that met, okay, a fairly large nose, and full of grace. Now, Paul, I love you. That sounds like a Muppet. <laughs> it does. But Agrippa and, and Bernice walk in with all this royal ceremony. And then Luke puts, points out this contrast. Paul, short, unibrow, wiry, walks in with nothing but his chains clinking. So with that contrast, look what Luke emphasizes beginning in verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with you, with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and, and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Did you hear the escalation there of Paul's innocence? It began with his innocence kind of just scattered here and there in the text. In verse 5, he says, we'll see if there's anything wrong with the man. And then a few verses later, they brought many charges they couldn't prove. And then all the way down in verse 18, his accusers brought no charge of the evils that I expected. But now, beginning in verse 25, he had done nothing deserving death. Verse 26, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Verse 27, it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner to an appeal without even an indictment. Now, three times in a row, bang, 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 Paul is proclaimed innocent. So listen, here's where we need to tie all of this together. Here stands Paul in chains. This is what Luke is building to. For two years, here stands Paul in chains before Festus, King Agrippa, and his sister slash wife, Bernice, are listening Festus has just said three times that he can't see anything wrong with Paul. So, so he wants Agrippa, the guy who supposedly understands the Jewish religion, to, to weigh in on, on, on how he has something to do with Paul and, and what Paul could, could have done wrong. So think about it. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Or chains might be more appropriate. After you brought money to help out the church in Jerusalem, a, a bunch of guys who didn't even live there showed up and started to accuse you of all kinds of things that you didn't do. And their case was so flimsy that the corrupt governor didn't even know how to charge you. But because he wanted a bribe, he just left you in prison. That was two years ago. Think what has happened in your life in two years. What Paul has missed. 
For two years, chains have been the closest thing to a friend that he could call. For two years, you've had open wounds around your ankles and, and wrists. For two years, you've been dependent on other people to bring you food and clothing and basic supplies because the Romans didn't provide that to their prisoners. For two years, you have lived a life like this until now. Now you have another opportunity to set the record straight. You even have someone who, who not only has authority, but has some basic understanding of what you're talking about. You even have someone like that to listen to you. So here's the question that this passage is begging us to ask. What is Paul going to do? How is he going to answer? What would you do? If you just spent the last two years in your, of your life in prison for no reason. Is he finally going to say, you know, listen, guys, this whole thing has gotten blown way out of proportion. Like, I know I didn't do anything that they said. But listen, what if I just promise not to go back to Jerusalem and and, and I just leave this whole thing alone? Will you let me go? Is that what he's going to say? What would you say? Let's listen to what Paul said, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul says, the reason I'm here is because I believe in the promises of the Old Testament. And I know you know what I'm talking about, King Agrippa, the promises that are made to our fathers. Why is it so outrageous? Why am I here on trial? Because I believe that God could raise someone from the dead. And then he goes on, recounts his conversion and the light on the road to Damascus and following, uh, you know, his or what happened after he was persecuting Christians. Drop down to verse 19. Paul says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea. And also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, perform, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So, and so I stand here testifying uh, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So again, at the beginning and then at the end, 
Paul refers back to the prophets and says, the reason I'm here is because I believe that Jesus is the one the prophets said must suffer and die and be raised again. That's it. And the Jews hate me simply because I brought that hope to the Gentiles. Like the risen Messiah told me to. So standing there in chains, after two years of being imprisoned, finally, another opportunity to get past this mess, what does Paul do? The exact same thing. The exact same thing that landed him in prison. He goes right back to the gospel. I'm here because I believe Jesus was the Christ. I'm here because I believe the prophets foretold that he would suffer and die. I'm here because I believe he rose from the dead. With another chance to finally vindicate himself and get back on the road to do his missionary thing, Paul simply states the same thing that landed him there in the first place. But there's something different about this time. There's something more. Every other time that Paul has gotten to this point, he's been interrupted. When he first started doing this, telling a story to the crowd, when he first got to Jerusalem, they interrupted him and tried to kill him. They tried to shout him down. And then when he told his story to the Sanhedrin, that whole thing just descended into a mess, an argument. Then when he was talking to Felix, Felix just stuck his hand out in his face for a bribe. Look what happens this time. Paul talks about the gospel and verse 24, he's interrupted again. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven, driven, is driving you out of your mind. I don't want you guys to get any ideas about what just happened. This is not the application for this text. I don't want you just to shout out, Grant, you're nuts. We're going to move past this. There's something more here for inter for about this interruption, though. What brought up this objection from Festus? Picture this. You're sitting there having lunch, say, with one of your friends. And he asks how you're doing since, say, your grandmother died. And you say, I'm... I'm I'm doing pretty good. You know, I see her from time to time. And your friend says, yeah, I know. Isn't it nice that, you know, little memories of someone pop up every now and then. And you say, well, yes, it is, but that's not what I mean. I mean, she's actually alive. And you say, and, and, and they say, well, I know. It's nice to know that our loved ones are, you know, up above looking down on us. And you say, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, I went to her tomb and the gravestone was overturned and there was no one in the casket. And I was so freaked out, I went home and locked the doors. And, 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 but, but my grandmother just walked through the walls and sat there with us. And my cousin was just denying that any of this was happened. So my grandmother let him touch her. And, and, and then she disappeared. And a few days later, she showed up. We were out camping. And she showed up and sat down with us and made some s'mores. And we ate s'mores together. Now what's your friend going to do? Very quickly and nervously, they're going to put their brownie back on the plate and leave. You see, Festus is hearing for the first time in detail about Paul's real relationship he claims to have with Jesus, who Paul says isn't just living in his heart, 
but is actually alive. Physically risen from the dead. But that wasn't what stretched Festus's rationality to the limit. What Festus could not contain was that Paul was saying that this Jesus is why I'm willing to be scourged and beaten and imprisoned for years on end. That's why Festus is like, that's it. Paul, you're nuts. You're telling me you're willing to spend years in prison because of some guy you say came back from the dead? You're certifiable, dude. But Paul's example here is just the beginning of, of this blessed legacy of Christian madness. Of people who do crazy things because of Jesus. I looked hard for a couple of stories that maybe you guys hadn't heard before. Here's one. In 1913, a 26-year-old man named William Borden, he left his, he's very wealthy. He left his mansion in Chicago, gave away his entire fortune, which today would be the equivalent of about $14 million, and went to be a missionary to the Muslim world. Six months later, he died of meningitis in a hospital in Cairo. And people, you know, back here in the States, mourned his, his mental break that must have led him to that decision. God didn't agree. You've heard the story about the 1924 Olympics where, where Eric Lytle refused to run on Sunday in his greatest you know, race because it was a Sunday and, and he wasn't going to run on a Sunday. But, but many of you, many don't know that that was just the beginning. The following year when he was actually faster. Everyone called him crazy when he left running entirely to move to China to be a missionary. Again, God didn't, didn't agree. That reaction, it's, it's not even confined to these historical heroes like, like Lytle and, and, and Borden. Right now, today, in our culture, to spend every last, last drop of energy on, on, on chasing wealth or power or success, that's acceptable in our culture. It's acceptable to move to another city or state to help develop, say, like one of your kids' athletic things. But watch the look on your co-worker's face when you tell them that you turned down a promotion because it would impede your ability to work for the kingdom of God. They'll call you crazy. Now, did you know that right now, right here, this morning, in this room, you nut job Christians are risking sickness and death. You know there's something better. And right now, the world would look at you and say, you are crazy for sitting in a group of people to worship what? A God? Here's the thing. This perspective, though, of, of seeing the Christian life as madness, it's, it's not just confined to our culture. It's begun to infiltrate the church. In the church today, as an example, it's no big deal to miss worshiping the, the creator of heaven and earth for athletics or vacation or even just a rest. But if I were to encourage you that the Holy Spirit, if I were to encourage you that the glory of Christ, if I were to encourage you that the, the majesty of God were so worth it that you could take time off of work or miss school to do those things. Come on, Grant, be reasonable. 
You're talking crazy now. Our world has always thought guys like Paul are insane. People who are willing to give up what they cannot gain in order to gain what they cannot lose. Let's keep going because here's what's cool about this passage. This time Paul's not done. Up until now, Paul's defense of the gospel is stalled out every time he was interrupted. But this time after Festus interrupts him, Paul doesn't stop. Look at verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this king has not, be, for, excuse me, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So instead of smoothing things over, instead of saying just whatever he needed to to get out of jail, instead of doing what needed to be done so he could move on with his missions, when we ask the question, what's Paul going to do when he gets a chance to get out of jail? He's going to double down and try to convert everybody in the room. Paul, you're out of your mind, they say. No, he's not. He's the only sane one in the room. If Paul had said these things, now listen, if Paul had said these things and, and explained that his religion required him to, to make these kind of claims... Or do these kind of things to, to prove himself worthy. You know, Festus would have understood that. Agrippa would have, would have understood that. But Festus and Agrippa know that's not what he's saying. The reason that Festus and Agrippa are so taken back that, that, they, think, that they think Paul is nuts is because it's clear that he genuinely believes that there is something better. Or, or someone better than being freed. Paul's not doing this out of some pious obligation. They would understand that. He's not, he's not doing this out of, or excuse me, he is doing this out of genuine conviction. That what he has is better than being free. He's made it clear that Jesus is worth more to him than not being whipped or beaten or stoned. Festus can, can clearly see that Paul actually believes that his Jesus is even better than being proved innocent. That's the heart of this passage. Paul isn't doing this because he has to. He's doing this because he wants to. Listen to Paul explain this mindset to the Corinthians because he tells them exactly what Festus and Agrippa, and Agrippa excuse me, are seeing here in real time. Do that slide for me, Mark. He says in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17 through 18, he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. And then building off of that, just a few verses later in chapter 5, he says this. 
So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather die, he says. We'd rather not, but, but, but we're good here if, we're too, if we don't die. He says, listen to this, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He says in verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, that's the same word as crazy back here in Acts. If we are outside of our minds, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So get this. Paul says, listen, Corinthians, if we act normal around you, that's just for your sake. Don't be mistaken. We're crazy about God. We just don't want to scare you off. Why? He says then in, in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, very next verse. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Meaning the love of Christ is so amazing, is so powerful and glorious that it controls us. It has such a grip on our lives that we don't live for ourselves anymore. Now, I get it, Paul says. That seems a little nuts to you. But trust me, Corinthians, if you knew Jesus like I did, crazy is not thinking that way about Jesus. So listen to this. This is where this message could go sideways real quick. I am, I am unashamedly proclaiming to you guys this same message, this same call. That, that your love for Christ would control your life in such a way that you would appear crazy to this world. I, I unashamedly want this world to think you're nuts. But it would be really easy for me to lay that call on you like a sack of wet rags. Here's five ways you should be acting crazier in the world. But I can't tell you passionately enough that that ain't what Paul is saying. Don't get me wrong. I want this world to think you're crazy about Christ, but I don't want you to do anything if you don't feel like you have to. I want this congregation to be crazier about Jesus because like Paul, the love of Christ has a grip on our lives. Because his mercy and his power and his glory are so overpowering that we can't help but act this way. I want it to look crazy that we don't want what this world has to offer. I want it to look crazy that we don't want safety and security and success if that means less Christ. So the way I want to conclude this message is with you just listening. I simply want you to, to just submit yourself to the word of God, to the power of the Holy Spirit, as I describe him to you. The, the Christ that Paul knew, that he was crazy enough to want everyone else to know. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe, if you think we're all nuts... I want nothing more than for you to hear why we seem so crazy about someone we can't see. 
Because just like Paul, my heart's desire is, is that you too would want to know him like we do. This is why Paul was crazy. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's who he was, but Paul tells us later in Philippians chapter 2 that this Christ, which is yours, he said, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Peter explains this to us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deficit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That shepherd, that overseer of your souls, uh, Paul explains, didn't stay dead. He, he prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and above and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that risen Christ, John explains to us, says, he says, Then I saw heaven opened in, in Revelation 19, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has, written, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen to Paul's conclusion about this Christ he knows in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in that Christ, 
he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled his, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting your trespasses and mine against us, then entrusting us with that message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through you and I. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's the Christ that Paul was crazy about. And he's the same Christ for you and I. Cedar Springs Church, my call to you this morning is to be crazy about that Jesus. For the world, let the world see that you are beside yourself with love for that Christ. Let the world accuse you of being nuts because of how much you love that God. Let the world think you're crazy because of how much you want that Christ instead of wealth or comfort or success. Lean into this legacy, this blessed legacy of Christians that were called crazy. Because they looked foolish to the world. As Jesus said, for, for giving everything for the treasure that was hidden in him. Let the world think you're nuts. Because you, like Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave up his life. Because you believe like him that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I... I praise you, I glorify you, I magnify you for your holiness and your glory and your purity. I, I long for the day when we are all in heaven and the multitude is, is worshiping you, the Lamb. Father, I, I thank you for your word. And I pray you would sink it into our hearts, the, the beauty and the grace and the mercy that you have shown us, especially on the cross. And, and then tell us about the power that was exhibited when you were risen from the grave. And then tell us about the authority that you have now as you rule over heaven and earth. Tell us about the hope that we have that someday we will be with you there. Father, give us this in our heart in a real way that the things of this world become dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.